Good. All right, good morning, Faith. Let's find our seats. We'll get started for this morning. It's good to catch up. Hopefully, as you were catching up, some of you might have uh, made your way over to the, to the Warner section where uh, it's Christy's birthday today. Seth set me up. He didn't want to say it, so he said, but you could mention it. So today is Christy's birthday, so you can wish her a happy birthday. All right. Well, welcome back to our series for 2023, The Life of Christ. We want to remind you that if you miss a message, any message of the year, you want to catch up, you can always do so. You can listen again, share it with a friend by going to FFC Sermon or sermons.org, where you can download or listen via podcast. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the Live tab, and watch a previous message on YouTube or Facebook. Let's pray and see what God has for us this morning. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that you are always here, that you never leave us or forsake us. Father, we thank you that we can trust you, that you call us to your presence, that you want to fellowship with us. You want to enjoy sweet fellowship with us. We thank you that you not only save us, but you invite us into your family. Father, as we open your word today, may we be blessed by what we read and see in its pages. In Jesus' name, amen. As we start this series, The Life of Christ, and we've been in it now for the month of January, moving here into February, as we walk through the life of Christ, I don't want you to forget what we talked about last year. We were in the book of Genesis. Genesis, which means beginning, is exactly that. It was the beginning. And last year, we spent the whole year going through the book of Genesis, what we called Where It All Began. We saw that the overall story of the Bible is about God's relationship with man and his creation, namely us, and how that relationship was perfect in the beginning, kind of like when you were first dating and everything is bliss, no one can do anything wrong, and then how that relationship and trust were broken by man, by us, and how God has spent this, the rest of this book and is spending his time now restoring through Jesus Christ what was broken. We saw the new creation that God made so that he could fellowship with us. It was a place for God to come down and hang out with us as he walked in the garden in the cool of the evening. I imagine God even looked forward to that, his favorite time of day, to come out and to hang out with his creation and to fellowship with them. But we messed that up when we decided that we knew better than God. And sin entered the world. Man was thrown out of the garden and out of the fellowship of God's presence, and all looked lost. But all the way back in Genesis, in that first book, where it all began, God comes, and as he's talking to Adam and Eve about the results of their sin, about the consequences of their sin, he hints at, he even points to the promise of a Savior and restoration for mankind. And it comes in Genesis 3.15 where he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Here God is speaking to the, the serpent who had deceived Eve, and he's cursing him. But in that curse is a promise 
from God of a Savior. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. That he that he is referring to is talking about Jesus. He will one day triumph over sin. God, through Jesus, is the one who gives us the gifts of hope, of love, of joy, and of light. It's what we talk about every year during the Advent season. And God was pointing all the way forward from all the way back to a plan that he had worked out before eternity even began of a greater blessing, God's gift and blessing to us. Paul says this in his letter to the Ephesian churches. I'm reading this from the message. This is Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. He says, how blessed is God. And what a blessing he is. He's the father of our master, Jesus Christ, and takes us to the high places of blessing in him. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning this. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved Son. God's greatest desire is for fellowship with you and I, for a relationship that is right. Everything God is doing is to bring us to that day for his own glory and pleasure. Uh, pleasure from creation through the Old Testament to the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to the giving of the Holy Spirit and the church, to his return, and ultimately to a new creation again when we get all the way to, to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God will be with them and be their fellowship. Hey, fellowship, God is not for us. God is not against us. He's for us. Amen? We say that all the time. God is not against us. He is for us. His greatest desire is to fellowship with you and I. But that choice is ours. We need to either simply believe and receive the blessings of that relationship or walk away empty-handed. And the consequences are severe. So as we dive in each week to a new event in Jesus' life, I want you to remember that they are all part of God's well-orchestrated plan. Our God does not leave things to chance, certainly when he is communicating with us. He knew exactly where he would be, when, and why. Now, he, he might mess up our plans from time to time, but that's because our plans have not aligned yet with his plans. For instance, last week, Jonathan talked about the calling of the disciples. One of the disciples Jesus called was Andrew's brother, Simon. Simon was a fisherman. He was in business with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus tells Simon, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated means Peter. But what he didn't know is that Peter had just gotten a thousand business cards that said Simon the fisherman. And the next day Jesus says, You will be called Peter. You ever had business cards ordered and then find out that there's a misprint? I must have three or four sets of business cards from my office because they keep changing my title. And every time I do, I order new business cards. I got enough to wallpaper my whole room in business cards. If he had only had it right. 
Well, today we are going back to John's gospel again, looking at the event in Jesus' life that is commonly referred to as Jesus clears the temple. Jesus clears the temple. You mean like, whoa, cowabunga, dude. He made it all the way from one side to the other. No, no, not quite. Let's read the section from John chapter 2 to get the story. Starting in verse 12. After this, he went down to the Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those, to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you give us to prove your authority to do this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. John's gospel is a rich and overflowing book full of depth and beauty and truth as it is unpacking the life of Jesus. We could easily spend a year in the gospel of John easily alone and not begin to, to uh, define, to mine all the depth of what is there for us. John opens his letter with a poem and he spells it out for us like this. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that had been made. Now a person's words, they're distinct from that person. But they're also the embodiment of that person's mind and will. And so John says that God's Word was with him. It was with him. It was distinct. But yet the Word was also God, so it was also divine. And as we ponder this claim, we hear later in the poem that this divine word took on human form in Jesus. The word became flesh and made his dwelling tabernacle among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That word dwelling, which is the same word used for tabernacle in the Old Testament, is an important one. We're going to come back to that and how that fits in to the story that we are considering this morning. Now, we can break this passage down into three sections. The first one is clearing the temples. That's verses 12 to 17. The second one is kind of an architectural argument, if you will, from 18 to 22. And the third one is kind of an epilogue on man, 23 to 25. We're going to limit the rest of our time to those first two. So that it's fresh in our minds, I want to reread those first five verses. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples. There they stayed for a few days. While it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. 
So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is Jesus clearing the temple. So Jesus has left the countryside. He's gone up to the city, and he's gone up to the temple for Passover. And as he's going into the temple, he's confronted by livestock, cows, sheep, cattle, doves in cages. What would be your reaction if you walked in here into the atrium next week and it was full of livestock? <laughs> that would be quite a thing to see. Would A cow was staring you right in the face. What would you say? Holy cow? Well, maybe because we're here in church, I don't know. It would be quite the thing to see. It's a market. People are selling their stuff. One sheep for five, two for eight. Uh, Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, is there. If you use your promo code, you can get your Giza sheets today for $29.99. Or the original My Slipper, my four patented layer design. He's selling his wares. Mattresses are on sale. When are mattresses never on sale? Mattresses are always on sale, just like all of the My Pillow products. Has anyone ever paid $90 plus for a pair of My Pillow shoes? I don't think so. You got to use your promo code. Everyone who is buying is looking for their best deal. Everyone who is selling is looking to make the most amount of money. You know, we had a yard sale once where we were selling two suitcases. My wife had marked one for two and one for three. They would have totaled $5. A woman insisted on bartering with my wife. Big mistake. You can't find a better barterer than my wife. It is built into her DNA and into the DNA of every Filipino I have ever met. This is what they live and breathe for. It's why she loves yard sales. You can barter at a yard sale. After going back and forth for several minutes, my wife finally said, all right, I'll make you a deal. You can have both for $5. The woman said, I'll take it. She paid her $5, and off she went with her two suitcases. After she left, I went up to my wife, and I said, how was that a deal for her? My wife was so into the art of the deal that even she missed that she had just sold them for exactly the same combined price. I think the woman saw the $3 coming down and thought that was a deal, but never thought about the two going up. So back in the temple, they're all shouting out what's for sale. It's like at the stadium, get your popcorn over here, you overpriced popcorn. This is noisy, this is loud, and Jesus responds to it. So I think there are two questions that we can look at and focus on. One is, why were people selling animals? And why did Jesus react the way that he did? It's good to understand what's actually going on. A market just didn't spring up out of nowhere. There's a reason people are selling animals here. To understand why they're selling animals, we have to go back to the Old Testament where there's a sacrificial system in place, still in place in the time of Jesus. And when you come to worship God, you come to the temple with animals that were required for sacrifice. The tabernacle and later on the temple were where you went to meet God. And in order for God to be there and for you to be in God's presence, you and everything had to be ceremonially cleansed with blood to be free from sin. And in order for you to be forgiven, 
God will not tolerate sin in his presence. The writer of Hebrews tells us, in fact, we can say that under the old agreement, almost everything was cleansed by sprinkling it with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. Animal sacrifice were an important and integral part of worship. They were your atonement, your payment for sin. And it only was good for a year. You had to come back every year. It was part of how the Jewish people related to God. And there were conditions on the animals brought for sacrificing. The animals had to be near perfect. They had to be without blemish or spot. You couldn't bring Stumpy, your three-legged lamb. No, he wasn't going to fly. You couldn't bring the runt of the litter to get rid of. Your sacrifice had to be your best. And it had to be young, a yearling, cute. It had to cost you something in order to give it real meaning. And there weren't tabernacles and temples on every corner. There was only one. In Jesus' day, you had to travel up to Jerusalem to sacrifice your animal once a year to make atonement for sin. Only good for a year. With those animals in tow. And so, for example, if you were coming from Upper Galilee, that's a hundred-mile journey to get to Jerusalem. So you've got to take sheep 100 miles to Jerusalem, and they need to be in good sacrificial condition when they get there. There is no talking your way out of this, out of an injury along the way. Uh, see what had happened was. See, the priests aren't going to buy that. There's no what had happened was. They don't take that. You show up with a good animal or there's no deal. Now, sheep are not my field of expertise. And while I can't claim that children are my field of expertise either, I do have a little experience in this area. And I figure this is a bit like taking your children on a long trip when first you get them dressed in their Sunday best. The condition your child leaves the house in is not necessarily the condition in which they arrive at the destination. Can I get an amen from all the parents out there? Amen. A well-dressed child will find a way to get dirty by the time they get where you are going. And the more dressed up they are, the dirtier they get and the quicker they get there. You'll find food from down the back of the car seat in their hair. They've spilled their drink. They've thrown up. They've half undressed themselves. They started off with two socks and shoes, and now you can't find one of either. Your child is no longer without blemish when they get there. I imagine livestock are pretty much the same after walking 100 miles. So you don't just take one good sheep. You take a few because you need a backup. That doesn't work with children, by the way. You're stuck with the ones you have. you got to deal with them. During 100 miles of walking in the wilderness, there are wolves. Sheep get injured. They trip. They damage their legs. There's no guarantee it will turn up perfect. And then you have to find a place to stay. You have to potentially pay to keep them in a, in a paddock or a pen. I don't know where you put sheep, but in any case, it's your responsibility to take care of them on the way. This is a huge hassle. And to some degree, it's a little bit of a gamble because you could go all the way there and wind up with nothing that was in the right condition. Get all the way to the temple and have nothing and have to go home and start all over again. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're going to go around the board again. So plan B was to buy them when you got there. You could save up a bit of money, maybe sell a few of those blemish-free sheep and take that money to the temple where you can find a market selling perfect, blemish-free, pre-approved sheep because your sacrifice had to be approved by the priest. At slightly inflated prices, of course, but your animal is in sacrifice-ready condition. 
This is like going to an amusement park where a soda, instead of being, you know, $1.39 is $8.29. You know, it's, it's pre-approved, but whew, what a steep price. That's slightly inflated prices. This is a pretty good business idea if you're one of those market stall holders. Now, I want to add, I don't think Jesus necessarily is against a good business idea. Not even this one. His complaint isn't against the business model. He isn't upset they are selling things. He's upset about where the business is located and that they are taking advantage of their brothers and sisters, their fellow Israelites. You know, if you lent money in the Old Testament to a brother, a fellow Israelite, you were not allowed to charge them interest. They had to pay back only what it is that they borrowed from you. This may not be a loan, but it certainly smacks up pretty hard against that same thing. They were taking advantage of their countrymen. The whole thing goes downhill from this point. Because in order to buy the animals in the temple, you needed to buy or exchange your money for temple currency. Roman currency was con wasn't considered valid in the temple. It had the head of Caesar on it. And therefore, the temple authorities considered that to be idolatrous. And so you had to convert your money into temple money. This was also done at a slightly inflated exchange rate in which the religious leaders took a decent cut. You know, it's like going to an ATM machine in a 7-Eleven and you put your card in and the first thing that pops up is there'll be a $4 service charge for this transaction. The same sort of thing. They were taking a cut everywhere they could. So all of a sudden, this sheep, these doves, are, they're going up in price. It's a good thing they didn't need to bring a dozen eggs. They'd have been out of luck especially in today's prices. Add to that, the market stalls were rented out against a decent price that went to the temple leaders as well. It's like finding a good hotel rate until you see there's a state tax, a city tax, a fund tax, a facility tax. By the time you all add it up, $99 a night is not so cheap. We went to book an Airbnb for $99 a night for an upcoming trip. We're only spending one night. And we're like, this looks great. Until we saw in the fine print, the cleaning fee was $120. That's more than the actual stay for the night. That's crazy. All these people have come a long way, and they have no real option if they've not brought their own sacrifices. Jesus gets angry at this. Suppose we implemented a new system where on communion Sundays, you had to wear you know, your pre-approved faith fellowship t-shirt. It's a lovely shirt. It's well-made. It's good material. Lasts a long time. I have two of these. I think we need to get some more extra larges. I couldn't find any big shirts over there. This is just a large. We got larges and a lot of smalls. It's a lovely shirt and a really good quality. You show up at the door after driving a long way with your family, and you can't get in or past me, but I offer to sell it to you for a slightly inflated price of about four times what we normally charge to keep you from entering. Do you begin to see why Jesus is getting angry? Why he reacted the way he did? And where is all of this commerce taking place? Well, the temple in Jesus' day looked like this. Just a second. I think I'm partially plugged in. There we go. The temple in Jesus' day looked like this. The market was in the temple courts of the temple. If you don't know, it was made up of several expanding areas. You've got the holy place, 
where the priests go. Then you've got the priest court. There's the women's court, which is a little bit wider. And then you've got the Gentile court, which in the temple that Herod the Great built was actually a really big area. And so the chief priest had gone, yeah, we got all this space. What a great place for a market. The problem is, is that that's the only place that the Gentiles could come to worship. And everyone had to pass through there in order to get to the temple. So people would come to worship. You'd come to pray, and all of a sudden, there are cows, there are sheep, there's noise, there's lots of poop all over the place, there's smell, there's people trying to sell you things. I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't be able to concentrate. I couldn't pray or really worship in that environment. It's inhibiting those who are wanting to come to God. They just don't get God. The temple, the tabernacle, was where God talked with his people in the Old Testament. Where, after being made clean of sin by sacrifice, we could enter into his very presence. It was the closest to the garden and God coming down in the cool of the evening that we could get to because of sin. Remember I said that word dwelling from John 1, 14 was important? Well, here's why. Jesus was the Word. It was God Himself. When Jesus came, when He was born, God essentially moved the temple and went mobile so that He could bring Himself to us. He put the tabernacle in motion. Jesus was the tabernacle. He was the place of God here on earth while He was here. Well, what about a sacrifice to make clean, to make me clean in order to be in God's presence? Well, if Jesus is the mobile tabernacle, how do we get around that? Well, John the Baptist tells us, he says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only did Jesus come to dwell, to tabernacle among us, not only was he at the tabernacle where the sacrifice for sin had to be made, he provided himself as the perfect sacrifice so that we could once and for all do away with that old temporary system of sacrifices and sins because he was the perfect sacrifice. The writer of the Hebrews says this, under the old agreement, the priest stood before the altar day after day, offering sacrifices that could never take away our sins. But Christ gave himself to God for our sins as one sacrifice for all time, and then sat down in the place of highest honor at God's right hand, waiting for his enemies to be laid under his feet. For by that one offering he made forever perfect in the sight of God all those whom he is making perfect. Amen. The Jews then responded to Jesus. They said, what, kind, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. So you've got to think that Jesus has made a bit of a scene here. He's upset everything. He's completely upended the financial system and scheme and the way these guys were making money. The side projects. If you were arriving at the temple and cows and sheep and doves are flooding out, you might be a little bit worried. He's also removed their revenue stream. And so the religious authorities come up to him and they say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? They thought of themselves as basically second to God because they had the right. They were put in charge of the temple. They had the right to, to say what went on and what didn't go on. Who do you think you are? 
Now give us a sign. Show us that you have more authority than us or that you are from God. You see, Jesus, by his actions of clearing the temple, is saying he is of a higher authority. By taking charge of the temple, he is saying he has the responsibility and the right to do that. Authority makes a difference here because essentially Jesus is clearing the temple courts. It's actually tidying up. If you were to go home after this service and you found that someone had broken into your house and tidied it up, there'd be, a, there'd be an interesting response, wouldn't there? You'd probably be a bit unnerved, maybe a little offended. Who's seen your house and decided that it was worthy of breaking and entering in order to tidy it up? What gave them the right? Authority matters. Now, if you went home and found that your children had tidied up the house, you'd probably also be unnerved. You'd be pretty happy and maybe almost proud because your kids had the authority to tidy up the house. In fact, you gave them that responsibility. But they, the religious leaders, hadn't tidied up. In fact, they were the ones who had made the mess. And Jesus exercises his authority as the Son of God to clean it up, to come into as he puts it, into my Father's house to restore what was broken, to make it a house of prayer once more, a place to connect with God. Jesus is here to make a change from the old system to the new. By taking authority, he is forever changing our access to God. No longer are we limited to a building in Jerusalem in order to meet with God. God dwells in us. We are his tabernacles. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your your body. For those of you who are believers, who have a personal relationship with Jesus, these next two questions are for you. Are you crowding out the temple within you? Is your temple a house of prayer, or is it a crowded marking place? Is there mooing in the background somewhere, right? Do you need to clean house? John, in one of his, uh, his, his epistles later on, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Worship team, you can make your way back up. I grew up going to Bible conferences and camps as a kid. One year, I remember being in the evening gospel meeting that we had each night of this week-long Bible conference. It was held at Grove City Bible College in Grove City, Pennsylvania, all the way up near Pittsburgh. The Bible conference was held on the campus. In fact, we rented the entire college for a week. We'd have... 1,500, 2,000 people there. This particular evening, the gospel message was brought by an old Irish gentleman who said that this night of preaching the gospel would probably be his last speaking engagement ever in his life. He was pretty sure that God was going to call him home soon. He got my attention. Plus, he had a way cool accent. He was like Scotty from Star Trek on stairways. I mean, it was, it was cool to listen to. Now, I don't remember his whole message except for one line that he kept repeating over and over again throughout the message. He said, God wants reality and not pretense. God wants reality and not pretense. 
God wants reality and not pretense. God wants reality and not pretense. I was maybe 12 when I heard that message. I'm 60 this year. I haven't forgotten it yet. We can crowd out our lives so that they are so full of stuff, even what seems like godly stuff, that we find we've pushed God to the recesses of our lives. We might even go through the motion of what we think God wants, but what God wants is plain and simple. God wants reality and not pretense. God wants our lives, our temples, to be a house of prayer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first commandment he gives us. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says those two commandments sum up the entire law. All 613 ordinances and laws that were given summed up in two commands. This is the house that God delights to dwell in, to bless and to uphold. You know, Jesus does raise the temple three days later his temple of his body. And his resurrection is the point where death and sin were once and for all defeated so that we might be able to have a life full of meaning, to have a life of purpose, to have a life where we have reconnected with God in a relationship that can never be taken away. John 3.16, we'll finish with this, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If you're here today and you've heard something you've never heard before, and you want to know more, don't leave without asking. God is here offering you a relationship to restore what was broken so long ago. And it's as simple as saying, Lord, I know I've made a mess of my life. I know I've screwed things up. I know I have sinned. I need your forgiveness. I need you to come into my life to be in my temple, to be part of me, to indwell me so that I might serve you the rest of my days. You do that, you'll enter into a whole new realm of possibility that you never knew even existed. And he waits to do that for you today. Amen? Faith Fellowship, know that God is for you, not against you.